Welcome to a beautiful day in the Swamp Ward. Down a gentle slope from here is the Cataraqui River, on its way to meet Lake Ontario. A causeway crosses the river, connecting Kingston to the east. And the hum of cars on the causeway is a sound that people who live here know well. Hot summer nights, brisk winter mornings, it's always there. In six episodes, this podcast series introduces you to the Swamp Ward through its sounds and its voices. I've spent a lot of time talking with people about this place, and I want to share with you what makes it special, what makes it ordinary, what makes it real. Swamp Ward, yeah. It was like another universe. We used to go and raise proper Hellas kids in there. A lot of stuff like that went on back then. This was years and years ago. I never changed my mind what we did at the time. I knew we were in the swamp. It was swamp. So then we got nicknamed Swamp Ward. Swamp Ward. Swamp Ward. Swamp Ward. Swamp Ward. Swamp Ward. What's the swamp water always swamp water? I'm Laura Murray, and you're listening to Stories of the Swamp Ward from Kingston, Ontario, Canada. That's what was so amazing about it, that Kingston, Ontario, and we were doing the same things as people were doing in L.A. or whatever kind of places. And it it was fairly independent. It wasn't like we were connected with those people at all. We just did it. We did it on our own. We were all like, I I never changed my mind about what we did at the time. You know, I remember a reporter one time, he said, what are you doing mixed up in this? You know, you, you, you won't be doing this for the rest of your life. Or, and I said, well, I said, I, I may not be, and I probably won't be, but I'll never change my mind about how I feel about this stuff, and, and I never have. In this episode, we take you to the late 1960s, when radicalism was erupting here as it did in so many places around the world. Kingston Whig Standard, Tuesday, September 1st, 1970. Quiet council meeting. Then the roof fell in. It was ten minutes to ten o'clock at what had promised to be a long, relatively uneventful city council meeting. The council was in the process of considering a recommendation to take no action on a rent control resolution. Rent control is a very backward step, said Alderman Spiel. Then the only woman alderman in the city had her turn. What this council has to decide is whether it's going to support the people or vested interests, some of which are on this council. As long as you let the tenant pay and pay and pay, it's destroying the people of this city. She concluded. Alderman Spiel rose for his last words. Let us deal with the real question, he said. Socialism. If you're going to control one segment of the economy, you've got to control them all. If it's rent control, then there's no stopping when you've opened the gate. The alderman had just finished in favor of not taking any action when Mrs. Maddie Poffley of the Association for Tenants Action, Kingston, attempted to speak. I'm sorry, Mr. Swain. I have to speak because... This is the most important thing in this city. You only listen to people like Mr. Sly because he's got property and money. (laughs) And you won't listen to people like myself who don't have money and who don't own property. I want to speak on behalf of the 5,000 people who signed the petition for rent control. Council stands adjourned, Mayor Swain finally called out. Joan Kuyak remembers the evening well. We knew it would be defeated. But we had worked, you know, for a few years on this, 
people really wanted rape control. We knew it was needed. We'd done homework. We'd gone through all the proper committees, and we managed to get it to council as a motion. And on the date that the vote was coming, um, the whole place was packed with our supporters, packed. And we had agreed that Maddie Poffley, who was a welfare mom, would get up and read a statement from us when it was defeated, and that we would all just in solidarity be there with her and it was defeated and Maddie got up and in a shaky voice read this statement I don't remember what it said now and the mayor got very upset because she wouldn't sit down and people started booing him when they tried to make her shut up and he adjourned the council meeting and got the police to come in and clear the council chambers and all the councillors and the mayor left except John and I, so we got dragged out too. We were all dragged out. That was it. In fact, that was it for Joan Kuyek's career as an elected official. She quit in disgust. But in any case, her position on council had only been one tool in a broader campaign. Kuyek had first come to Kingston from Ottawa with SUPA, the Student Union for Peace Action. Well, the project was to organize poor people to take power for, over their own lives. I mean, these days I look at it and I think, well, that was pretty presumptuous. I mean, I, I made sense to me that you would help people get together and organize. Um, but when I think about it now, we had very little to offer. And I, I think what I really had to offer was my unbounded enthusiasm and belief that you could make change. But really... Uh, We're talking with people, you know, with five and six kids living in houses with a privy in the backyard on Lower Union Street. Um, Their husbands are ex-cons working at the shipyards. And they knew more about life and what was or was not possible than I ever would. So in some ways, I mean, I, I can't imagine why they even bothered with this, but they did. Myrna Wood was an American, and she came to Kingston via the southern U.S., where she'd been working with SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, on voter registration. My position in the SUPA circles was that they were all university students, and I was the only worker that I knew there. And um, so my position very strongly right from the beginning was equal pay. (laughs) Give women the same amount of money that men make and we can make our own decisions. We can pay for our abortions. We can pay for an apartment, you know, all those things. Um, We still don't have it. (laughs) So they were very courageous in having anything to do with us because we were seen as the kind of people the males had long hair and, you know, frightening in one respect or another. Joan and me, we were the outside agitators, right? Of course, agitation is only one ingredient of a movement. Joan came across Jim Hutchison because he... Uh, he was a welder in that, and uh, he actually spent time in KP there. We had a guy, guy went down, died, and he got convicted of manslaughter for five years or something like that. Anyway, he came and got out, and then he, he helped ex-cons after that. At a certain point, we started this community information service because people couldn't 
get information about stuff, you know, like how do you get on welfare? How do you, how, what can I do about this landlord? Um, so got a little office there. Um, and, and Jim, he manned the phones there for months. He, he was a real smart man. He was. He could, he, the Queen students would come down there eh? and they just walk out shaking their head. He just could turn them around. It was pretty funny to see, actually, because the smart-ass Queen students would go in there thinking they were going to educate him. You know, and he'd educate them pretty good. I don't think he got paid a cent for, for anything he did there. Um, and you had to know what you were doing. You know, people would call you and uh, call up there and, uh, you know, you couldn't feed them bullshit and, and you had to come up with information, you know, like it was pretty, pretty important. In Kingston, as elsewhere, young people at this time felt misunderstood and mistrusted. They were being harassed all up and down Princess Street. They had a lot to be angry about, right? But because of this atmosphere and everything that was going on in the world, they come up with the idea that they needed to have a demonstration. The teenagers of the downtown sort of took over the project. <laughs> they were the ones that were really angry at the way they were treated and the power imbalance in the population and were ready to stand up and make a noise. The climate at the time was that it was becoming uh, sort of popular among young people <laughs> to stand up and yell, which is, of course, always a very good activity to do. One of the young guys, his father had worked at the one plant outside of town, so he was aware of what a strike was, and he explained how you made signs. <laughs> so they started making signs, but um, truthfully, we found out from the media came to us and said, what are these young people doing? <laughs> and, and it was hilarious because they were asking us and we didn't even know what was going on, right? <laughs> you know, the stories of the leaders having to run to get in front of the people. <laughs> That's what was going on there. You know, there'd be swarms of kids and, you know, and it was considered really, you know, it was a terrible thing, right? They kicked us out of the market square and somehow we just all, end, they all ended up somewhere and decided to get a place of our own. And then they couldn't kick us out of that. Right. But I mean, like I said, some of the kids were 16 years old, you know, so it just, it, it actually just went from there. SUPA and the CYC, that is, the Company of Young Canadians, supported local youth by opposing an anti-loitering bylaw. They also negotiated with the city and landlords to help establish a series of youth centres. The last one, The Place, was on Queen Street. Dennis Crossfield was in the thick of it. The whole idea of the clubs was everybody was welcome. That was one of the main tenures of the whole thing. Plymouth Square... It was like, it was a sanctuary for everybody, you know. But then we got the place. It like, it was so successful, it, it got out of hand, it's basically. We were, had the paper upstairs. It was a nice big open area. It was, it was like a storefront. Uh, we had walk-ins all the time and stuff like that. And uh, it kind of fell apart. It just, it was too much, that's all. And we had to pay rent and that, so we had to raise money and and keep the place clean and, you know, the city renovated washings for us and 
But see, they had the idea because it's like we had nothing to fight for in a way, you know. It was like all of a sudden we got exactly what we wanted. That was Doug Fur. He was smart. He was smart. He said, "That's the smartest thing you can do. Give them what they want," you know. Logan Murray was another local teen who got involved in political organizing. I was born in Kingston in the North End. <clears throat> That's where I grew up till I was 13. My old man worked at Canadian Dredge and Dock. He was a draftsman by trade, and he was designing and building Navy tugs. So anyway, but he worked there for 20 years. So that, I mean, that was my upbringing. Uh, then he got religion. He became an Anglican minister. That was the genesis of me being a political person because we changed class uh, in the eyes of, of some people, you know. Everybody who lived around us was all in the same kind of situation. So I thought everybody lived that way. But as soon as I walked in the door at KC and I saw how the people looked and whatever, I realized there was a difference. I had a great time my first year in grade nine. There was all kinds of stuff going on there that wasn't going on. There was music and drama and all kinds of stuff. And I thought it was great. When the summer came and we got off, I went back to my old neighborhood. Uh, when I finally saw my old friends, and I kind of realized that they were going to be excluded from that. And it just came crashing at me that their expectations in life and where they were going and how it was way different from the people in the other end. And if I stayed the path that I was going to go in KC and whatever, my life would have been way different than the guys that I had grown up with. Uh, but I, I, I didn't actually stay there. I, but what happened is by the time I got to grade 13, I was a pretty well-known shit disturber around town. Murray joined the editorial board of This Paper Belongs to the People, an ambitious monthly publication explicitly designed to challenge the authority of the establishment Whig standard. Housing squeeze. The exploiters are in town. Industry in Kingston. Who was ho? Depredations of a slum landlord. All power to the people. Che as profit. Deserters in Canada. This paper published Joan Kuyak's study, Power in Kingston, accompanied by a photo spread of the homes of the city's most powerful men. The piece pulled no punches. In a town that was the birthplace of confederation, we daily sell our land, our working hours, and our power to make decisions to American industry. We see the ridiculous spectacle of an entire city kowtowing to an industry which pays lousy wages, pollutes the air, makes materials to slaughter babies in Vietnam, and orders the elected representatives around by threatening to pull out if the city doesn't cooperate. The paper paid special attention to landlord-tenant issues. John G. Hewitt is known to own over 130 units of housing on which he refuses to make improvements for which he charges exorbitant rents. Last Friday, members of Hewitt's Tenants Union picketed the main branch of the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce at Bagot and Brock here in Kingston. The picketers gave out 800 pamphlets charging that by granting John Hewitt mortgages, the bank is responsible for maintaining the conditions in Hewitt's slum dwellings. By demanding that the bank end its financial support of John Hewitt, the union is beginning to understand the real problem in our society, 
There are, of course, other people who support John Hewitt, aside from the bank. Why could it be that these people who support John Hewitt do not believe his tenants to be full citizens of this society? In this context, recruiting tenants to participate in the rent strike took care and time. So he just talked to people about their situation first. You know, you got you want to find out where they're at. I mean, when I started this whole thing of sitting down with people and talking, we were trying to convince them to join the rent strike. You know, and so you're, you just start... You know, throwing a little bit of analysis. Well, how did that guy get all this? And, and how does this all work? And, and the city council at that time was full of real estate developers and, and stuff like that. So you got to find some kind of common ground and you got to develop some kind of trust and you got to show some understanding of where they're at. And then you got to start saying, well, what do you think we could do about this? I also always say that deep down inside, most working people, from their experience, have a tendency to have a conflict theory analysis. They do want, You don't have to tell them that they're getting the shit end of the stick. They understand that. Logan Murray didn't stop a talk. He went for action, too. We were trying to get a typewriter for this, one of those IBM Selectrics, so you could have different typefaces for the paper. And we kept saying, and they kept stalling us and blah, blah, blah. So... I just, I rode a motorcycle in those days. I got on my bike, rode up to Ottawa, went up to the head of the CYC or to the office, the main office, and went in and went up and talked to the director and said, hey, we got to get this worked out. And we just got, you know, the runaround. So I went down to the main desk, the receptionist that's sitting in the office, and there was an IBM Selectric there, and I unplugged it. I carried it outside. I strapped it on the back of my bike and I drove it to Kingston and we, and we used it. Meanwhile, Joan Kuyak hated being on city council and the rest of the organizing work was tough too. I ran thinking that I wouldn't get elected and it would be a way to raise issues. And then I got elected and discovered to my horror that I could no longer sort of be an organizer because people expected me to deliver miracles. And that, that was really hard. Um, once I got elected, my life changed dramatically. Um, people would be calling me, expecting me to deal with their day-to-day problems, including landlords expecting me to help evict tenants. And tenants who had terrible problems that I couldn't begin to deal with. We could never get anything through council. And you took enormous amounts of verbal abuse. These days, I would have called it sexual harassment, but I, in those days, it never really even occurred to me. But it was just, it was incredibly frustrating and difficult. Given the level of change we expected to see happen, of course we were frustrated. We we weren't creating the revolution, which is what we thought was going to happen. I came into this sort of thinking, I don't know, that community development, helping people achieve their own goals would all work. And all of a sudden I'm faced with, you know, people whose lives have ended up in prison. Out of the people that Dennis and Lexi and I knew in those times, four of them were shot in gangs gang warfare you know like yeah I mean I those kind of things were just awful but looking back Kuyak feels that the work in Kingston was worth it it was the best education I could possibly have had mm-hmm. and I think we made a difference I mean I I like there's a lot of people who whose lives are different because we were there we didn't get the rent control we wanted in Kingston, but we did manage to work with other cities to change the Ontario Landlord and Tenant Act. The rent control and the 
security of tenure and those things that weren't there before. There was no requirement for notice or recompense or anything. Um, I think the work we did with youth made a big difference in the lives of a lot of those young people. We had a number of different youth drop-in centers. Every time we got one, it was a victory. Um, when we stopped somebody from being evicted, we managed to get 15,000 signatures, we managed to get somebody to endorse our position. The Community Information Service was really interesting for me because it enabled us to use legal steps in order to organize with people around very specific personal issues, and we'd win those ones. We very often won. So those kind of things mattered. Um, the relationships we were able to build with people, that feeling of, of victory. And a lot of times you're organizing an event or something and it turns out, so that's a victory, right? Kuyuk has continued to work on social justice issues all her life. And in fact, she teaches and has written a book about community activism. At age 80, Myrna Wood is fighting against wind turbines in Prince Edward County. Logan Murray has just written and recorded a satirical song about Donald Trump. When the Youth Centre on Queen Street closed in 1970, Dennis Crossfield was really discouraged. Sit back, Kingston, you've won again. Your status quo is being preserved, he wrote in this paper. And if you're lucky, no one will ever try to do anything of their own again. But he ended his column with this. Don't sigh yet, though, because there's still a group left, just like there was before, and they'll still keep looking and trying, and they understand just that much better than most of you have never even tried. Dennis still has long hair, and he still rides a splendid 1968 Harley. Thanks so much for listening to Stories of the Swampport from Kingston, Ontario, Canada. This is the sixth episode of our podcast, and the last for now. If you want more... Go back and listen to the first one again. Or let us know if you want us to get back in the editing room. We've got an oral history collection of more than 75 interviews so far and growing, so there are lots more topics we could explore with a little time, money, and help. Stories of the Swamp Ward is produced by me, Laura Murray, with audio production and story consulting by the all-hearing Phil Lichty. Jeff Elliott did the final mixing and mastering. Music is by Sam Allison. Today's episode was based on interviews with Dennis Crossfield, Joan Kuyak, Logan Murray, and Myrna Wood. The interviews were conducted by Scott Rutherford and me, Laura Murray. Jamie Swift, Jeff Smith, Susan Beliveau, and Ella Mackay Singh lent their voices for the newspaper excerpts. Other assistants along the way came from Ronan Goldfarb, Yanni Pantis, and Justine Hobbs. For more information about what you heard today, check out Richard Harris's book, Democracy in Kingston, McGill Queen's University Press, 1988. The Queen's University Archives houses the surviving issues of This Paper Belongs to the People, thanks Joan Kuyak, and uh, you might also want to check out Joan Kuyak's book, Community Organizing, A Holistic Approach, published by Fernwood in 2014. You can find Logan Murray's song, Livin' with Donald, on YouTube. Queen's University and the City of Kingston Heritage Fund provided essential and generous financial support, and thanks also to Friends of Kingston Inner Harbour and CFRC, Queen's Campus Radio 101.9, our partners in these podcasts. If you want to know more about this place on the planet, check out swampwardhistory.com, the website of the Swampward and Inner Harbour History Project. And there's a special companion blog post to this particular episode at swampwardhistory.com slash fightthepower. 
I think you'll really enjoy seeing the papers and posters made in Kingston in the 1960s. And that's it. Over and out. For now, at least. It was an honor and a pleasure to make these audio documentaries. I hope you found them good company.